Lord, this is a remarkable moment when you really have said that you will use the Word of God explained and preached and applied. You really will do this, and your Word forever stands as needed, even when we were created in the garden, when Adam and Eve, these perfect genius people, Lord, they still needed to be instructed about what was real, what was true. And so, Father, you know how deeply we need to be instructed and told what's true. And so we ask you to help us. We cry out to you. Don't leave us like we are, Lord. Don't leave us like we are. Ask these things in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, again, it's great to be back. Brandon, thank you for your sermons. I'm still catching up on them. Everyone has said so, spoken so well of your words and your preaching. And uh, so it's good to be gone and not needed. How about that? All right. Uh, so we start a new series uh, today. And what I want you to know is this is called Eight Attitudes, but it also includes behaviors. Now, I want to be very careful when we talk about behavior in the church. It flows from the grace and the behavior of Jesus for us. All right? So I want to make sure we're very gospel-driven as a church. And, uh, but we are praying in this series to become disciples. Now, let me ask you, so I'm not just... You, you can contribute. You can have a little bit of dialogue here. When you hear the word disciple, you heard the passage, right? Jesus calls his disciples. So just toss out a word. Toss out a phrase. What, what's that? I can... Follow. Thank you. All right. Thank you. To follow. Beautiful. Anyone else? Just a, you know, if you're wrong, we'll let you know. No, I'm just, no, I'm just having fun. Uh, what, what, what else comes to mind when you hear of disciple? That sounds like a Christian buzzword. What? Student. student. Okay. Follower, student. Teacher. So there's a teacher-student relationship. Good. Someone who serves. Okay. Good. That's cool. That's uh, you get the, the feel for it. It's a disciple, right? It's 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 really important that we as a church figure out. You know, it's a beautiful thing when we have a, a common language, a common understanding of terms like the gospel. We have Christian buzzwords, don't we? We have these buzzwords: fellowship, grace. Uh, you know, even the gospel can be a buzzword, right? We just throw it around. We don't explain it, and so they, we can live in these world, this world of cliches. You know. Well, the word disciple is packed with meaning. Now, I've had two weeks to prepare a message. Are you ready? I mean, I kept thinking, Lord, have mercy on these people. I had like 42 pages of notes this morning. I had to like, that's just, that's just unkind, you know. So uh, discipleship has got to move out of the buzzword category. It just can't be just like, oh, I kind of vaguely heard about it. Maybe you're part of a discipleship group, whatever that meant. So it's got to move out of, out of, a, out of buzzword category. And it's got to become really deeply precious. Uh, in attitude, behavior, and it's got, to be, it's got to be really important. Attitude and behavior, uh, God is interested in our behavior. And so uh, I just want, by way of an outline, I want to explore some things. Pretty simple. There's an attitude included in the idea of follow me, verse 17. There's a behavior anticipated in being fishers of men. So attitude, behavior, you have your outline there in your worship folder. And then number three, there's a presence available to us for new priorities. Attitude, behavior, and presence. Now typical of Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel is moving out. I mean, he is moving out. 
He loves the word immediately. It happens 41 times in Mark's gospel. Immediately. And immediately Jesus moved. Immediately they left their nets. It's, it's Mark's favorite word. How did Jesus get these men to leave their livelihoods? Think about that. What would it take for you to leave your livelihood? Just imagine that. What puts food on the table for your children? Verse 14. After John was put in prison, that's John the Baptist. And so it's in the context of oppressive political power. Serious stuff's going on. Just, just take that great prophet John, just throw him in jail. We'll, sh- we'll show you who's, who's, who's authority here. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Look at verse 15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Something in his compelling authority blew the disciples away. This was an individual you could not avoid. You could not minimize his words. This was, I'm going to respond. They're going to have a front row seat to watch kingdom priorities flow from the daily pursuits of Jesus' life. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, it's not a vague idea. It's going to happen. It's going to unfold as a demon is cast out of someone, as as someone's healed, as he teaches The kingdom is unfolding, and the disciples have a front row seat. His authority was compelling, and they desired to be with him. With him. That's our subject today. Now, we're going to look at eight attitudes. Next week, we're going to talk about surrender. The disposition of the heart that surrenders. But today, we're just going to talk about generally being with him. right? That's what we're talking about, being with him. So we really haven't started the eight yet. It's just with him. Jesus' authority is the first thing they experience. And I would say it's the last thing they hear from him as he speaks what we call the Great Commission, recorded in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. What does he say as he as he's about to depart this earth in bodily form? All authority has been given unto me. Now go and preach, baptize, teach them everything that I... Go out to the nations... So their first encounter with Jesus was his compelling authority, and he re-emphasizes it as he's risen from the dead, ascended king, go. Go out into this darkness. Go out into this chaotic world. Go. You've seen me, as it were, conquer all these things. This is purposely in our Bibles to think, what could be so compelling and so significant that anybody would leave their livelihood? That's why it's here. It's to disturb us. It's like, uh, I can't, I don't know. Now, some of us, you think about, you've done this. You've done this. Some of you, you pursued your career, you left home, and you packed your little Honda Civic or whatever you had, and you drove. And you left. You left everything that was comfortable and everything that you knew, and you went to some new college or some new institution. You in the military went to some, you know, went through boot camp. You went through, right? You were following your heart, your dreams, your passion. So we identify with a career such that we're able, we want to leave our homes. We're used to this. It actually happens a lot. But here Jesus does what, well, what, what we seem to kind of a little bit used to. Like, yeah, if your passion really is for that, you ought to go all in. Something in his compelling authority 
The disciples are all in. Now, we know they're not going to understand everything, right? We know. This is just the introduction. Jesus doesn't cower in the context of his cousin being thrown in, the, thrown in prison. John's in prison, but he moves into the darkness fearlessly. In just a matter of, of days, they're going to encounter demons and an, an awful stuff, religious pride, and soon, in Mark's gospel, there will be religious leaders who declare their intent to kill Jesus. But the great revelation of the kingdom is underway. The disciples get on board, not perfectly. And they are going to be changed at the identity level of their lives. The disciples were largely thinking that their lives were intact, by the way. They were Jews. They understood uh, one of David's sons is coming. Messiah will set up shop in Jerusalem. We're God's chosen people. Yeah, things will work out okay. We'll be blessed and we'll be protected by God and everything's going to work out fine for us. They had an us for and no more mentality. Everything's fine. Now, they have no idea, but every preconception they have about God and themselves is going to be shattered. Everything. They have no interest in the nations. They're not walking around the beaches in Galilee going, man, I want to reach the, you know, reach the, the Greeks. It's not, it's not in their consciousness. Everything about their identity is intact. And do you think Jesus is going to rattle your identity? Think he's going to rattle you where you think you're, everything's intact? You can count on that. They thought they understood everything correctly, and they were just at the beginning. They were in kindergarten, just getting started. But something has happened in their hearts, and the, Jesus has called them to be with him, and however he presents this kingdom, man, they're, they're in. They began... to leave their dependencies upon their own controlling abilities. And the big, the big work of changing their imagination was underway. God and God alone can sustain my life. Now this leads us to our next point, and that is that they're called to be fishers of men. So there's really two things that Jesus does here in this passage. Mark presents that the disciples are called to be with Jesus, and then they are told about their future purpose. They will be fishers of people. Now, to be fishermen, uh, that was what they did. These four, at least, were fishermen. Not all the disciples were fishermen. But these four were. And uh, they leave their nets... But as they leave their nets, they are also told that they will still be in the fishing business. They understood that this would be a 24-7 training, even though they didn't understand hours. They understood the 7, not the 24. And as Jesus calls them to repent and believe, they will begin to repent of anything that would get in the way of the purpose for them, and that is to be fishermen of people. 
Now, in our cultural moment, we have no one to follow, nor are we interested in following anyone. We have it all in our hearts, thank you. In the South, they would say, we're all that and a bag of chips. Meaning, we are full of ourselves, and uh, the only quest we really have is just discovering ourselves. So, we do this inward look, continue decades after decades, and somehow we're supposed to come out of that and be authentic. That's a key word. We're not following anyone. Or we might follow for a while, and that will change that out. So in our 20s, we follow. Maybe we'll follow Jesus for a while, but then we change that out. Most of us are following, in this culture, we're following the American dream. Acquire more, get more, and somehow this will equate with happiness. You know, there's a happiness scale. I don't know if you notice that there's some university somewhere that monitors this. And our income has steadily, since the 70s, gone up, even though you may not feel that yourself. Income's gone up, and happiness has gone down. And that drives economists crazy. How can that be? The more stuff you have, you ought to be more happy. And they're, they're called into a 24-hour training experience in the kingdom values, and it has to do with other people. And they're being brought into the great plot of the Bible. God is interested in the nations. The potential exists, though, that Christianity might be just another thin belief. This means that as people encounter things today, when you can encounter truth or ideas or whatever, it's always encountered as a thin belief, thin. Thin meaning you'll try it on for a while, but you don't really hold it that deeply. So let's say you're in your, you know, say you're in your 20s and you're really into environmentalism. Okay, great. And that's, you just run with that, run with that, run with that for 10 years, and then you change it and go, ah, I'm really into marathon running now. That's what I'm really into. In other words, your environmental pursuits was just kind of a thin belief. Thin. Fishing for men is going to be a thick belief. Thick. Often in our day and age, people leave their options open. They don't want to come to conclusions. That's actually a virtue in our day. I'm not going to come to a conclusion. That's a virtuous thing. I'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave all options open. That sounds, that sounds yeah. you, you, you get affirmed for that. Jesus is clamping down on a task, a behavior of fishing for men. This is going to be a passion, and you're going to clamp down on it. You're going to say, this is connected to my very identity because my heavenly Father is concerned for the nations, and I am in sync with his heart. Keeping options open is actually not an interest of mine as a follower of Christ. We live in a day when everything is contingent. Everything is transitory. Everything is... everything. People are just unable to settle on much of anything. Now, these men are, know what fishing is. And fishing was the purpose of their life. And Jesus is going right after it. This is going to be the purpose of your life. Have you ever, honestly, I want to just challenge you here. Have you ever fished for people in the intention of your conversations and neighborliness and barbecues and 
welcoming people? And Have you ever intentionally said, I am going to build a friendship with this person, and maybe God will lead this, lead the conversation. You don't have to have any can thing or a little track or anything like that, but just maybe in the natural relationship that we develop, we're going to have a conversation about what matters. And by the way, you can talk about the weather and Jesus. You're about, one, you're about two sentences away from talking about Jesus, by the way. At any moment, I've seen this all the time in my life. Talking about how small the seat is next to me in an airplane, and then like just a thirty-eight seconds later, we're talking about Christ and eternal matters. Do you, have you ever seen God just begin to shape a conversation? Well, not that person trusted Christ, or some something amazing happened that you were able to see. Have you ever experienced that to see this? We, we had this. These exotic trips we've taken. We were in Turkey back in 2005, and here we are. We went through all these cave churches. I've told this story a couple different times. All these cave churches down in the, in the central part of Cappadocia. And I'm there with a tour guide, about 10 of us, and we're cruising along, and we're looking at all, this, all these amazing frescoes of, of, of Jesus and the angels. By the way, if we were in Turkey, 300 A.D., this church would have an image of Jesus at the top and angels all around and then the gospel writers all around. That would be, our, that would be the focus of this church. You would be connected with heaven above. And so this man turns to me, the tour guide, and he says, I can never figure out what those keys are. There's keys on the wall. In other words, there's a little, little fresco. They painted keys on the wall of the church. And a lot of times it's as you enter into the, into the cave doorway. There's a pair of keys there. And I got to tell him, I said, well, Jesus in Matthew 16 says, I give you the keys, the keys of the kingdom. And I said, those are the keys of the kingdom, and that's the preaching of the gospel. And so there's this skeptic Berkeley, new Berkeley grad uh, young woman named uh, Katie, and she kept peppering me with questions throughout the whole day. She was a skeptic. Just honestly, just she just thought it was neat that these are church, but this whole idea, and she just gave all her skeptic thought, thoughts. And so we're having lunch one day, well, that, that same day, I'm sorry, that day, we're having lunch on a river, above, on top of a river, a deck was over a river, how about that? And the river's underneath us, we're having kebabs. And uh, Marianne, the girls, were, they're sitting, and Katie is sitting right in front of me, and she's got a few more questions for me. And I said, Katie, listen, you're the one who has all these questions, and you've already made all these conclusions about ultimate matters about Jesus, about the Bible. I said, why do you keep asking me questions? And I didn't wait around for her answer. I said, I'll tell you why. Because the God of the eternal universe is tracking you down. I said, what are the odds that we're here? Uh, what are the odds that you're, the, you're here with an English-speaking American who's a minister of the gospel, and we're above a creek in Turkey having kebabs, and you keep pestering me about Jesus and questions about this, I said, God is tracking you down, and it's just a matter of time before you yield. You, you have to, you know, this is not, Jesus is not teaching a burden to these men. Oh, by the way, you know, you really got life out of fishing, and now you got to go do this thing about fishing for men. If you've ever been around fishermen who are not just sort of professionals who are kind of hardened by it, but more amateurs who love it and don't really, and they can't wait for that big catch. They can't wait for it, right? They're excited. It consumes their life. Jesus, Jesus is going at the deep passion level. 
Fishing was life itself for these men, and he went right after what is life itself. Now, here you go. You know what's coming, you know what's coming your way. Where in your life do you think you have found life? If you're an accountant, it's with your numbers and your spreadsheets. If you're an organizer, a military somebody, it's something in what you do, right? Jesus is coming after that, where you are putting your heart right there and saying you have not even begun to understand the Father's kingdom priorities. Now, this is very fascinating how this all happens. This idea of fishing for men actually comes from Jeremiah 16. And what God does is very fascinating. You all know that the big event in biblical history, the big, big, big event of the Old Testament is God rescuing his people in the Exodus. And that shapes the whole Old Testament, right? Well, something comes along that's even bigger. And it's at a really troubled time in Israel's history, really troubled. That Jeremiah speaks of a day coming when those who went off to Babylon would be restored. This is a second Exodus. Now, again, we get into the biblical history Here's what happens. God is going to fish for them, fish for them, and bring them into safety. He's going to fish for the remnant of God's people who are stuck in Babylon, and he's going to bring them back. And in the process of bringing them back, they are going to be cleansed, and they have been cleansed through the judgment of Babylon. The experience of Babylon functioned like a judgment, and now that they are cleansed, they will be brought back. Well, that is all a precursor for the ultimate cleansing that comes through Jesus as he is judged on the cross. And so what, it, what happens, though, is that the people of God is far beyond the Jews. What happens there in that passage in Jeremiah 16 is that Jeremiah himself is beginning to reflect on this, and he's beginning to see that the future will hold, that the nations themselves will see the futility that they've been engaged in. The nations will see their idols. The nations will know the futility of their lives, and they will cry out, let us come to Zion. Let us come to Jesus, translated for us. And Jesus is now saying, the cleansing process that will happen through my atonement will allow you to give them some good news to tell them the gospel. They can approach the eternal God and you can become fishers of men. This past week I was with 60 PCA pastors and their wives in Chattanooga at a conference and it was invigorating. The presence of Jesus was with us. Jesus was with us in song, word, and encouragement. The meetings were animated. And after the meeting time, when we hung out in the parking lot, we were animated. We're trying to figure out how to fish better and how to help our people fish and to do this more wisely and even care about fishing. God was present with us. Then I realized that I had to make some quick travel plans because my Flight, one of my flights was canceled, so I had to go through Chicago. The, the welcome of Chicago, 15 degrees, and I'm in Chicago. Now, next to me at a hotel on Wednesday night, providentially, God in his great love put a Geno's pizza place within, within walking distance. And it was 7.30 at night, and I thought, wow, if I eat a bunch of pizza, 
and that's how you eat pizza. If I thought, I thought, if I eat a bunch of pizza, I will be so full I won't sleep well. I thought about that for about maybe four seconds. And I said with great wisdom, forget sleep. So now that is, you know, there's a big debate, but that's pretty close to the holy grail of pizza places. And um, so the contrast, however, could not have been bigger. Those 60 animated pastors and their wives and that Gino's pizza place. I thought there was a civil emergency going on or something. Everyone, first of all, it's hard to get a hold of a waitress. Uh, and then it was, it, it, was, it was all labored. Everything was labored. No one had any joy. No, it was just, you know, if they could look at just this whole thing, like, uh, just close this thing down. Why aren't you even excited about the pizza? No, it was palpable. I felt like I was bothering someone ordering a pizza. Grasping the Father's heart for the nations is Jesus' last key words to the church. Now go and make disciples. Start fishing. You've seen me fish. Oh, what a master fisherman Jesus was. Nicodemus, the religious professional, John 3, drawing him in. All his pre-misconceptions, all his sophisticated stuff, drawing him into the heart, the heart of being born again. And then his masterful work of cultural connection with the woman at the well. What a fisherman Jesus was. The disciples had seen this. He knows how to speak sensitively to people, so are we called to do that. He was, called, he was patient with people, so we are called to do that. And Jesus is with us, imparting his spirit, the Holy Spirit with us. And guess what, what do you think the Holy Spirit is going to do in us? Well, one thing the Spirit did in the disciples was they just thought they had it together. They just thought, right? They just thought they had it together. And they did not know they were just slumbering and going nowhere. And the Spirit moved and changed their hearts. Jesus takes the image of what life was for them, what life was for them, and he floods their imaginations with something beyond anything they could have ever thought. You, Galilean, uneducated nobodies, are going to be apostles to the world, and world history will never be the same. We've got to think about our own view of ourselves, how we discount ourselves, how we minimize how God could use us. He's going to do the same with us. If you're resisting the Spirit, I guarantee you, you are resisting evangelism, connecting with your neighbors. You are not in step with the Spirit. Now, lastly, I just want to talk about this. There's a presence available for all these new priorities. A presence, the Holy Spirit. What do they have when they have Jesus? They've got him. Who's going to take care of the demon? Jesus, well, what about these people who can't be fed? Well, Jesus will do it. In other words, what they see is the presence of Jesus working for them and providing what they need. The fatherly presence is so radically important in our day. The fatherly presence, we need his presence. 
We have a crisis as a country going on right now with mental illness. A crisis. Dartmouth Medical School did a study on this. These are not believers. They did a study and they came to a conclusion about what's going on with all this mental illness and it has a great deal to do with the lack of relational connection people are having in their own families growing up. But then, strangely enough, Dartmouth Medical School said this. People need a relationship with God. How about that? That they need a way of having bearings. They need a way of having direction. They need to have purpose. They need to know that someone's in charge of this world. They need, this is, these are non-believers discovering something that our Bibles already tell us. Jesus is with you in his church, with you individually, to accomplish these priorities. Now, how do I know these begin, are beginning to become real in my life? First of all, the kingdom has begun to own my sense of time. This passage is all about time. You can't just sit around and dawdle when you're in the presence of Jesus. Well, I'll think about it. Actually, Jesus has much to say to people like that. If you just say, well, I'll think about it, you're not hearing him. The kingdom of heaven has appeared in Jesus, and he calls me to engage because something inevitable has begun. Something inevitable. More real than the future of this country. More real than anything, anything you can imagine. The kingdom of God is on the move. And if, if you, this is what the disciples, it was palpable. I can no longer, like our age and our culture, avoid conclusions about life's purpose. I can no longer be in this uh, ambivalent place. Now, of course, if you arrive here, look, maybe you've arrived incredibly frustrated and, and struggling and ambivalent to the core. Welcome. We want you to feel comfortable here. We want you to feel okay here and safe here. But the invasion of God's will is underway. Christ is the end of prophecy. No more prophets coming. Wow. The binding of Satan is underway. How about that? He's a tough guy, but he's bound. You can go into his house and take anything you want. The wonderful and all-embracing redemption is underway. The authority and the power of the Son of Man is underway. And Mark just can't wait. Immediately, Mark tells you a story about the authority of Jesus to forgive sins in Mark chapter 2. And all you have to do to qualify to be part of this great kingdom is say, I'm poor in spirit. That's it. I'm poor. I don't have any money. I'm spiritually bankrupt. That's it. And guess what you get? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? Theirs is the kingdom of God. How about that? Is, that? is that big enough for your heart? Is that big enough for my heart? So the kingdom has begun to own my sense of time. Secondly, I am not satisfied with my Christian life as a thin belief. See, there's a point where we're kind of watching. Kind of, I don't know, that sounds cool. Jesus, that sounds cool. I like what Jesus is saying there. That's nice. I like that. That can fit into my already good life. So that's how a lot of us think. I've got a good life going, got some good income, 
I got it together. And you know what? Going to, going to Jesus for heaven? Sign me up. Sign me up. Of course. What about a life where your whole life has to be completely rebuilt? Everything. Everything you value, everything is important, everything you aspire to, everything you have passion about, it has to be completely rebuilt. And guess what? The presence of God is with you to deal with all the fears that you've been feeling while I've been talking to you. And they've been real and they're palpable and they are real. And these men begin to express, I'm not sure I want to follow you all the way here, Jesus, especially as you go to the cross. I'll follow you if you're going to set up a kingdom and we're going to look good. I'll follow you there. And by the way, uh, can, can we have some special seats next to you when you come in power? And we'll, we'll follow you with it because it's going to work for us, right? Jesus has something far greater to put into their hearts, and that is the Father's will for the nations, and it will cost them. The presence of Jesus, not willpower or resolve, the presence of Jesus enables them to surrender and enables us to surrender our control of our self-determination. And he is present with you today in word and sacrament. And here's what we would say. I would say, I join you. Here it is. I too can follow this Christ, for he is with me. And I, along with my church, can serve his purposes for the time I have on this earth. May I be a disciple. Our Father, we do thank you that you call us to be disciples and you give us everything we need to do it. Be with your church now, Lord, as we experience and understand and feel and know your presence with us in the Lord's Supper. We pray these things in Christ's name.